Welcome to episode 75 of the Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. Well, Mike, it's uh, it's been a while since I've actually talked to you here on this podcast. It feels like it feels like months. Like it months does. It feels like it feels like you're lying when you say every week we talk. I mean, it sounds, like, <laughs> yeah. are you lying? <laughs> I know, man. We should be a lot better with the yes, every. Week we will thing. be. I think um, we should. But yeah, man, we we've we've been involved in some uh, interesting. Opportunities and scenarios yes. in our uh, post Webby life. Yes, correct. Uh, <laughs> and it's a uh, good news. And, you know, hopefully we'll be sharing with you what's going on with us in the future. But uh, on this week's episode, and I'm very happy to say we have a great guest. His name is Chef Kwame Onwachi. He's a true trailblazer in the culinary world. Um, he has his first ever cookbook coming out on May 17th. It's called My America Recipes from a Young Black Chef. Uh, and he was recently featured in Time's 10 Most Anticipated Cookbooks for 2022. This guy's been on Live with Kelly and Ryan on the Today Show, on the Drew Barrymore Show, on Good Morning America, pretty much everywhere. And, and now he's on Brown and Black. And now he's on Brown and Black. That's exactly it. So we'll be talking to him in uh, just a few. But Mike, I wanted to begin this whole show with the announcement that the Barbie movie, the brand new Barbie movie, there has been a lot of talk about this. I mean, we've had Barbie animated TV shows and Pixar did a whole spoof on Barbie. You know, it was very funny. But now we're getting a live action version of Barbie that's coming out in 2023. And as soon as I saw it, I would not have questioned this in any way in 2019. Post Floyd, I can't see things the same anymore. And the first thing that popped into my mind when I saw the Barbie movie is, oh, it's Margot Robbie. Margot Robbie is the face of Barbie. Interesting because this movie comes at a time where we are all redefining in the fashion world, in the beauty world, what beauty is and what represents in particular American beauty. And I think what Hollywood is telling us by seeing these photos of Margot Robbie is that American beauty is white, blonde, and blue-eyed. Is this the right message to send right now, Mike? Is this going to get major backlash? Is anybody going to talk about this from this perspective? My take is, I look at who's behind this. Now, this is being uh, directed by the current It Girl, Greta Gerwig. And I say current It Girl in that she was sort of the indie darling when she was an actress. And now she does these, quote unquote, you know, sort of feminist female empowerment films. Now, she's an interesting filmmaker. I always thought she was. Yeah, a she's bit very over female Woody Allen-ish. Female Woody Allen-ish, and and I and I also think 
over the years, Barbie, I, I do not think they could make a Barbie movie and let it be what it seems like it is. So I have to assume there's a subversive nature because over the years, Amy Schumer was going to play Barbie and Hathaway was going to play Barbie. Diablo Cody, who, who's like the former stripper who became a screenwriter who wrote Juno, was going to write the, the screenplay for Barbie. So the Barbie project has all the trappings of being a treatise on beauty on what it is to be a woman, on all these things. I have to assume, especially considering what Margot Robbie's starting to do with her career, okay, mm -hmm. in terms of like how she portrayed uh, the skater and, and, you know, just what she's doing because her being exactly what you said she is, she's that, that blonde, blue-eyed, tall, thin, model-looking, that icon of American beauty, uh, she's gotten certain kinds of roles for, for a long time. Even though they might have been a Scorsese role, it's, a, it's kind of the same kind of role Sharon Stone played and so-and-so and -so played. So I say all that to say, I'm hoping, looking at some of the people that are attached, you know, they're Asians, they're Latino, America Ferrara, Issa Rae, all these people are in it. I have to assume it's going to be addressing what it looks like it's representing. I mean, look... The first original Barbie was white. It wasn't until 1967 yes. that they had the first African-American Barbie. And it wasn't until the 1980s that Barbie and Mattel decided to do a series of Hispanic dolls. You know, you had a Mexican, a Puerto Rican, a Peruvian Barbie, you know, something to reflect the, 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 the complex diaspora of, of uh, Hispanicness, I guess. And a the, there's a Peruvian Barbie. There's a Peruvian Barbie. What is, that sounds like a band. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, a great yeah. Band but you know, there was a lot that. of controversy, you know, with that. And I just we go back to what is American beauty anyway, Mike? Well, here's the thing. Okay, I don't know what this Barbie movie is about. You know, I don't know what character because Barbie's been so many different things. In you know, there's a Malibu Barbie, whatever. Uh, you know, so. I wonder what this movie could possibly about and why there's any point in making it. Because like you said, there have been Barbie references. There have been other Barbie movies. There are like Barbie 3D animation movies been around for a long time. It's, it's, it's sort of faux girl power, a bunch of girls getting together, doing nonsense. I don't know. I, I'm very curious to see what this Barbie movie is all about. Because, you know, you're saying Barbie was white. What you're also saying is beauty is white. And that's what Barbie has that, always that's it. represented. And it's, it, it's so is is this new Barbie movie glorifying and celebrating Eurocentric Western standards of beauty? Or that's what I'm saying. Is this propaganda for white supremacy? We have to play this soundbite <laughs> when the movie comes out and we review it. <laughs> so, well, listen, these know. are just questions just from seeing mind. a photo. Okay. Just from seeing a photo, I'm asking myself all these questions and I'm like, hmm. yeah. 60 years later, Barbie's still Barbie, huh? Barbie is still Barbie. Still Barbie. Uh, on another note, Mike, I uh, wanted to talk to you about this event I went to the other day. So, you didn't we, go to. Excuse okay, me. Okay. 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 Excuse I me. Moderated. Yes. Uh, an an HBO Max event for the season two premiere event of The Flight Attendant, which uh, stars Kaylee Cuoco, uh, also Griffin Matthews. 
as well as Rosie Perez. And I was supposed to interview at the TWA Hotel, Rosie Perez and Griffin Matthews, but Rosie couldn't make it. and uh, She was sick. So unfortunately, she wasn't there. There's and some irony in this story, you realize that. There is some irony in this story, <laughs> correct. Um, with that said, so I had a chance to just interview Griffin Matthews, who plays Shane Evans, uh, the CIA agent in the show. By the way, season one is incredible, and season two just started. So you guys, it's like the first couple of episodes. But him and I had a chance to talk a little bit about diversity and what his character Shane Evans, what does he contribute and what does he represent to the overall television industry um, and to on How do you think Shane Evans and your character and Rosie's character uh, in the show, how well do you think this contributes to the TV landscape and how does it contribute overall to society? Well, the first thing is that I'm a black, gay, skinny CIA agent <laughs> with like a dreadlock mullet. Like, I think it counts in the canon of TV. I didn't see anybody like me when I was growing up. And I certainly didn't see them in a position of authority. My, the early part of my career was a lot of sassy secretary and sassy best friend. And so to have a position on a TV show on HBO Max is... Um, I mean, it's life-changing for me, and I hope that it impacts the way that we see ourselves on screen. We were talking earlier about Barbie, and, and there are certain images that become iconic. They represent certain things, both negative and positive, you know, and how we, both brown and black people, are represented in film, in television, in toys, in cartoons. It, it says a lot about perception. There are a lot of people who probably would think that there are no such edible as what he plays in our government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I do think that that's powerful. But it also brings up something to me in terms of, you know, a, as a black man, I, I, of course, I love to see a black CIA agent. Uh, whether he's straight or gay doesn't really matter. It's still representation for, you know, part of a group I am a part of. But Looking at the recent cancelizations of these two TV shows, you, you sent me two TV shows that are being canceled, Promised Land and Queens. And Promised Land, I mean, you know, it's Matt Lopez, this lauded playwright who's done all these things. He's won awards. Okay. He created mm -hmm. this show, uh, you know, again, about the struggle for power. John Ortiz is in it. You and know? John, John Ortiz is this in is it. This is his uh, first, you know, uh, protagonist role, you know, on a major television network. Uh, you know, so it, it's got a lot of pedigree from from what I'm looking at, you know, uh, it, it, you know, Michael Cuesta is directing, you know, all these people who have been in the business who are, you know, this is a quality product, but nobody watched it. it. They pulled it after five episodes and then they, they, the rest of the 10 episode season aired on Hulu. And that makes me wonder, huh? Now, to me. My initial look at it is, oh, it's just like a Latino take on a million other shows we've seen. And how many shows on the rich and famous and the power struggle of trying to be power and blah, blah, blah. How many shows do we want to see like that? Telenovas do that better than, than late time soaps. But then the other show, uh, Queens, which... Again, I get it. You know, a bunch of 40 something. They used to be a gr girl group. They're trying to get the groove back on. Uh, 
okay. I, I mean, it's I'm not the demo for it. I, I'm curious as to why it got canceled, but I guess part of it is ratings. And so then my question is, what do we and brown folks want to see? What kind of representation do we want to see? What will we tune into? And I really want to know your yeah. take on that. Oh, listen, to hear that promised land that had an all Latino cast for the most part, uh, with Matt Lopez behind it. And I know Matt's gone on to Twitter and go, yo, <laughs> we don't have a bad show here. No. We have a really good show. It got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, Eric Galindo, I think, uh, in our interview that we did with him, he was praising Promised Land and Matt Lopez, you know, which I think after like an episode or two, they yanked it and put it on Hulu. That's where I started. After, after five episodes. Five after episodes. five episodes, right? And so it's on Hulu and then, and then you cancel it. Like all that work, all that work, just wasted poor marketing. You didn't really give it a shot. It's almost like, Hey guys, uh, can we make a budget? How much money would we need to kind of just bring in these Latino and black shows so that we can pay them off? Quote unquote. Can you, do you have that pay them off budget for production? Yeah, this is money that we're just going to give away, make them seem like we're interested, like we really care and we're going to market it, but Dude. we're really not. We're going to just tax Dude. credit this off. Dude, you know, it's funny you bringing this up because I have friends who tell me that this is exactly what they're doing on Broadway when it comes to brown and black representation, but it's no. not a conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah. You were like wait, wait, this. wait. Oh, what, what, ha what have you been hearing? Well, I've just heard that, like, let's act like we're doing something, but let's set something up to fail. And, you know, yeah. like it, it's famous to, to it's pretty famous, I think, even though I've never seen an episode that Seinfeld didn't do great in the first season. But the studio and this there are many shows like this Star Trek. Oh I God. mean, are, tons where they, of shows, uh, tons of shows where they allow them to find their audience. They give Correct. it time. OK, to find the audience. I can't even think of a brown or black show. The that Wire, they gave time. probably considered the right. greatest television series of all time, took right. forever to get That's going. That's right. And and the point is, when you have, let's just say, certain, uh, let, let's be real, when it's not brown and black uh, at the top, behind it, they give it a chance to, quote unquote, find its audience. That's right. You know, and and that's what I feel like. We don't get that opportunity. We'll be quick to be canceled. And this formula of of whatever metric they measure by, whatever saying like, yep, cancel it. That's what's hurting Netflix. That's true. That's true. And, and they, they just lost a two hundred billion dollar valuation market yes. value. Yes. And, and, and it's interesting because you just ask, what is it that we want to watch? If you ask Netflix, garbage. <laughs> yes this is true this is i true. mean billions and billions of dollars worth of it look you got the carl sagan uh soundbite billions and billions of garbage but yes i'm with you and so I think it's time, I think the new thinking in media now, when you hear all of these quotes from the CEOs of all the streaming apps, you know, the ones in charge of content and news, et cetera, et cetera, they're all like, well, you know, clearly just spending content on just anything isn't working anymore. We really got to focus in on 
on quality over quantity. So less programming, but better programming. Wait, who's and saying that? All the CEOs of all these streamer apps, you know, from David Zaslav, Chris Lick, the new chairman you think that's of CNN. What they're saying? No, this is what they're saying. It's on all of the trade magazines, all of the quotes, Bloomberg, CNBC, Netflix, Reed Hastings just that's, went on record to yeah, say but that. That's that's such BS. That's like that's like that's like a cover. It's like, are oh, you put out a bunch of crap? Let's tell them that we're not putting out crap anymore. We're gonna focus on good stuff. Yeah, say that. Yeah, yeah. But 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 Mike, I just how much of what Netflix has is filler. There's Netflix just spent $22 billion alone this year in content. At some point, that was just unsustainable. Billions, not millions, billions. So at what rate are you going to burn out? Instead of spending $22 billion, maybe you can spend $8 billion and kind of create more Emmy award-winning type of content doesn't have to be all prestige, but increase the quality pool of the creators involved in these projects. I agree. And also, I think, have a little more faith in the stuff that you have done. Correct. You know? Give them a but chance. I, but I, I think, you know, here's a, the irony of, of a Netflix, in my, my opinion, you know, that they they started out as a delivery service. Then- they became um, this other thing. They became a place to, to stream content produced by other people. But then it became clear that the real valuation is subscribers. If you've got subscribers, mm. you've got a, 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 a eco ecosystem. This is what Apple showed everybody. If you've got an ecosystem, you can exploit that ecosystem. This is what Amazon has done. Mm. If you've got subscribers, you can use them. You can you can monitor them. You can you can figure out what they want and give it to them. Now, the other thing that Netflix started doing originally is when a show would get canceled by a network, they'd pick it up. They'd be like, "Hey, we want to give the fans, we want to give people what they want." And they even that's they even acted or thought they wanted to serve fans and and create their own ecosystem with. I don't even know how it's pronounced. How is it pronounced? Too dumb, to dumb, whatever it is. To doom. To doom. Okay. Whatever that is, however that is. The reason that that failed, reading that article you sent me about why it failed and, and to doom, what, just for our audience, what would you describe to doom as? Because I A feel like the people, okay, the people who work there couldn't even describe it. It's more like an editorial site for Netflix to just promote Netflix content. It's like if... I don't know. Walmart decided to do Walmart Gazette right. and the Walmart inside Gazette, Walmart, right <laughs> inside Walmart. Check out all the specials and everything else. Here's an interview right. with our stock director, you know, <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, it, the people likened it to to the concept of like DVD extras, you know, and 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 that makes sense. But they clearly didn't know what they're doing. But they've lost they've become about and i don't know if this is what happens when a company goes public it's they're chasing not customers they're chasing money they raise their prices they limit the sharing they keep putting out crap they cancel shows it's like they're doing everything wrong because they're much less connected to the audience they started to the to the to the community they started Exactly. And they're also not building franchise IPs, you know, intellectual property. They they have Stranger Things when 
<clears throat> when when Stranger Things comes out this month, a lot of the Netflix talk is going to start being diffused and it's going to be reframed. Oh, you know, Netflix is back on top, everybody. You know, stocks are going back up. Dude, it went from $700 on the stock to 196 You could buy Netflix now. For 196 <laughs> For 196 it's supposed to 700 something. Did you buy any? No, I, oh. I don't know, because I don't know if Netflix... I uh, think my- Netflix might be headed down the blockbuster route in about 10 years. Well, I think they don't change shit. Well, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think Netflix is like any other business model. You know, what Netflix has done is they changed the game. They changed, they absolutely changed the game. They changed the game on many levels of entertainment, the delivery system in terms of the binging format, the the binging delivery format, the delivery of that, you know, what can be awards worthy, all kinds of things they did to change the game. But guess what? Okay, once you create the model, you don't always stay in the top position. You know, there will be once you've created the throne, someone else will be able to take it. (laughs) You said that, man, like you read it off of a fucking. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Mike, uh, action. (laughs) Here's the last line of that script. Dun, dun, dun. Dun. Now, this subject leads me into, believe it or not, Mike, sports journalism. And what I'm saying about that is I was watching ESPN the other day, and one of my favorite shows is First Take. It's with Stephen A. Smith, and he has a rotating host of sports journalists and athletes. And on this particular show, Mad Dog Russo, who is a New York sports icon radio personality, He's been in the New York sports radio business for like 20, 30 years, man. This guy's old school. And so he was on the show with Stephen A. Smith. And so was J.J. Redick, who's a former NBA athlete. And he has his own podcast, his own media company. This dude knows what's up. So they were talking about a player named Draymond Green. If you don't know who Draymond Green is, he is a player from the Golden State Warriors, considered one of the best defenders and you know overall good players in the NBA. And he got hit in the face. He was in a press conference and he was just talking about what he was going to do. And and Mad Dog Russo comments and says, you know what, Draymond Green, you should just shut up and play. No one wants to hear about you. J.J. Reddick got really upset and essentially dude went off on him. The same sort of connotations that the shut up and dribble crowd has towards athletes. And I have a real problem with that. And specifically with Draymond, the idea that America is tired of him. You do realize the guy has a very, very popular podcast that he hosts where he talks himself for a majority of the episode, and people listen to that. He signed a talent deal with Turner because people want to hear what Draymond has to say. The reason they want to hear what Draymond has to say is because just like in this press conference, he is real, authentic, and unfiltered. And as a player, he is real, authentic, and unfiltered. The edge that he carries himself with He's talked about this since game one. Clay Thompson has talked about this since game one. It's what makes him great. It's what makes him a future Hall of Famer. It's the reason he is who he is. 
It's just like saying, hey, John Morant, stop dancing when your teammate's making a three. The reason John Morant is great is because he plays with joy and fun and a carefree attitude and a fearlessness. You can't take away what makes a player great. So there's no shut up and play. Sure, there are certain younger fans, especially, that like to hear him play. I'll give you a large segment of older fans who have followed the NBA for 60 years. Who are, this is not a political scenario or a race situation. Who have followed Wilt and grew up as a Nick fan. Who love Clyde and love Reed yeah, and love I, I, the I Pearl. Yeah, I with you on that. I don't think, I don't, I'm not saying it's a race, race situation. I'm saying that this, the, the fans you're talking about, they talk about athletes that way. Like you just talked about an athlete. I think there's a lot. I think people, there's a people lot. On Fox, the people on Fox News talk about athletes that way. Well, that's, I mean, that's, I, my, I, I, Fox News that's is, my issue. I, I don't actually care about the fans that watch Bob Cousy play right. or watch Wilk play. I don't care. Right. I appreciate that they've been NBA fans that long, right. but I don't appreciate the undertone. So as a consequence to this, Draymond Green, who has his own podcast and is also his own media, I guess, company and, and, uh, and platform, went on in response to that segment. And he essentially started talking about that the days of old media are gone. And that today there's a new media. And that the new media are athletes coming into sports reporters, sports occupying sports journalist positions. And then giving a more accurate description of what that is. And not only that, new media is also making these sports announcers who've never played sports um, accountability for then not knowing what the game's about. So there's always going to be somebody making another journalist accountable. And that's the new media today. Here's what Draymond Green said about that. Yesterday... There's a lot of news in sports talk world, in the sports talk world. Um, but in particular, J.J. Reddick sending the clown back to the circus. Um, number one, I'm not sure where this dog, this, this um, bad dog guy really came from. Um, I've, I've, I really noticed him maybe over the course of the last couple months um, going up and just screaming to the top of his lungs when he's sitting next to Stephen A. Yesterday, uh, he goes on TV and he says, America is tired of Draymond Green. Not sure what gives him the right to speak for America, what he's, he's done in his life for her. You know, I mean, he sits in on Stephen A's show and screams. So I'm not sure who he's become in sports or in media to say how America feels um, and what gives him that right. Uh, but we're not shocked that he would think that he has the right to speak for America. <clears throat> he then proceeds to say, shut up and play. I'm not one to really pull the race car very often um, because I think, you know, we all know the role that race play in the world that we live in. And so I'm not really one to pull the race car very often, but that definitely had a very racist connotation. Um, just, I mean, he, a, a very racist undertone and and even even beyond it being having the racist undertone, 
we don't need to go any further than who are you? Who are you to say, like, what have you done in your life to say America's tired of him? Shut up and play. Shut up and play. As I said on my Instagram caption the other day, those shut up and play, shut up and dribble days, those are long gone. We don't, we don't, we don't listen to that anymore. We don't want to hear it anymore. It has no place here and nor will it be tolerated. I also proceeded to say, it's time for you to go home and sit on your couch and be and thank the good Lord that I didn't want his job. I meant that from the bottom of my heart. Before I signed with Turner, I was actually offered a spot on first take. So there's your backstory for I, I don't I don't play games. I don't play these reindeer games. When I speak, I speak from the heart. When I speak, no, it's real. It's thoughtful. And, and more importantly, it's truthful. When I say sincerely yours, the new media, what I mean by that is the landscape of media is about to change. You will no longer be allowed to sit there and say what you want. You will no longer be allowed to put out these false narratives. You will no longer be able to allow to not know what you're talking about and we're going to listen to you. Those days are long gone. You know why? Because we have guys like J.J. Reddick who's done it, who speaks it, who knows how to, to speak on any different topic, who's not afraid to shut an idiot up. When I say sincerely yours, the new media, the, you will be held accountable. And you will have to know what you're talking about in order to speak on eSports. You will have to know what you're talking about in, able, in, in order to, to speak on this game of basketball. You know why? Because we're doing it now. We're doing it now. And we speak it. And we can do it. So, so bad dog. Go thank the good Lord that I didn't want your job. You can have that. But just know you will be held accountable. I will be watching you and embarrassing you. So make sure when you go up there screaming and yelling and talking all that nonsense out the side of your neck. Oh, now, buddy, you will be held accountable. You will. Believe that. I'm holding, I'm holding everything you say accountable. The days of the media holding players accountable and you no longer being held accountable are over. We're not living with that no more. Sincerely yours, the new media. Mike, I read, look, you and I know that the media and entertainment space is going through a drastic, drastic transformation. Nobody knows where it's headed to. But watching this sports segment and watching this podcast with Draymond Green talk about the media, right? These are athletes. This is a basketball game. This is a this is ESPN. Like, why are we talking about, you know, journalism and media? It's it's a crazy. So I'm hearing this and I'm going, wow. It looks like sports journalism is starting to show the first sort of shades of what maybe, Mike, new media is going to look like in the next five to 10 years into the next generation. 
do you think that what Draymond's talking about, the new media, might trickle down to entertainment journalism, to hard news journalism? Well, first of all, I think, and I'm sure maybe half our audience completely know what the hell you're talking about. And the other half is like, I have no idea who any of these people are. I don't know what the hell Jack's talking about. I fall into the latter. I had, I was like, I don't know who any of these fucking people are. I don't know what he's talking about. I don't even know Draymond Green. Ooh, who, what? JJ, what? Mad Dog? Who the fuck is that? <laughs> so I didn't know who any of these people are. But as soon as I did a little research and you showed me some clips, five things I'm going to address that you talked about. One, I think Draymond Green is absolutely correct. You know, I, I mean, when you hear that clip, the person, who the fuck is Mad Dog? He's a fucking radio personality. Who the fuck is he? All right. Thank you. How many how many points have you scored ever? Thank you. And, and I think <laughs> uh, Draymond was nice in the way he framed that, uh, too. But he got put in check by J.J. Reddick. Now, I didn't even know who J.J. Reddick is, so I did research on him. Like, yeah, J.J. Reddick can speak on this because he's a freaking great player. But shut the fuck up. All right. So that's one. And I think the fact that he could check this clown this 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 opinionated clown like they he has been called i think yes he could because he knows what he's talking about he's played the game and i think you know the the idea of having players comment on games goes back a long way from from wilt chamberlain people he was talking about all these people have been commentators but for them if they are like a michael strahane or or like this guy clearly uh, uh, Draymond clearly has a future. He just signed a deal with with Turner, and it's going to you know open him up to all kinds of you know. He is more than just an athlete. He's an athlete with a brain, and he's an athlete of color, and he lives in a country that is fascist, racist, sexist. That is is doing all kinds of things to people of color, and you. God damn right, he's going to have something to say about it, and he should. Third thing is that, yes, I think that that is the future of media. I think the future of media is what we're seeing happening. You know, that accountability, that comes from the fact that you don't have to have a major network to to be heard. There are tons This might of be platforms. the beginning of, 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 yeah. of the solution to, to commentary uh, news magazine shows, like in Fox News. Like, just because you have an opinion that's being, you know amplified on your platform doesn't mean that there are not going to be any consequences to that you're going to have accountability moving forward with other journalists that are going to be fact checking you in your face this is why we this is the 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 good part and bad part of what they call cancel culture cancel culture exists because of accountability you know i mean like anything else it can be co-opted and twisted and become something else that it shouldn't be but it comes from that place of accountability where you do something and now it gets out and everybody's got something to say you know and especially people who know what they're talking about have something to say and you come out as now I'm gonna get all black on you come on come out your face with some shit like that then you know people are going to put you in check that this guy that that's the fourth thing this guy is so He's more than unconsciously racist. He, he he doesn't care. He doesn't care how he sounds. He feels normal. You saw the way he kept defending himself. He feels completely justified. There's nothing that JJ could have said to him that would make him realize he was being an asshole. He's too deeply embedded in being one. Yeah, he, yeah. He, and he, I, he's proud of it. I think that this new movement of athletes becoming sports journalists, you know, to a certain extent, or uh journalists of some form you know Com- commentators, the, the, commentators but you know 
I, I guess so. And, and, and this is my take on it. My take on it is that if you are someone who is capable of excellence, you know, and we can think of lots of, 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 you know, whether it's Michael Jordan, you know, he, he wants to challenge, he tried to challenge himself in base baseball, right? That was an epic fail, but it doesn't matter. He, he had conquered this one thing. He wanted to do other things. And there are tons of players, Charles Barkley. There are tons of people who, who, well, they were this then, and that got them, you know, that was, they were able to amplify their views, but now they, they feel there are tons of actors, Alec Baldwin is, 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 is wrestlers who have become governors. So, I mean, I think it's the, the idea that you could start one place and quote unquote diversify, look at 50 cent, you know, people could talk about whether or not he was, I, I was, I was watching the game was talking about how 50 cent can't rap. That's why he's so good friends with Eminem. And basically he was saying that, he feels he's a better rapper than 50 Cent, but he's not a better TV producer. So <laughs> people, you, right. you know what I mean? So, you know, 50 Cent started where he did, but he used that to 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 do more. And and I think, yes, that's the future. Well, first of all, Kwame, um, let me do a quick intro just to introduce you for our, our podcast audience. You are a James Beard winning chef uh, who has been named one of Food & Wine's Best New Chefs, Esquire Magazine's 2019 Chef of the Year, uh, a 30-30 under 30 honoree by both Zagat and Forbes. You were featured on the Time 100 Next 2019 list, been named the most important chef in America by the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, you've opened up five restaurants before the age of 30. Uh, your new, uh, your your first book, Notes from a Young Black Chef, is being adapted into a feature film by A24. Uh, I looked at your Instagram. I know you were shooting something in Montreal. I'm not sure exactly if that was the film or not. We'll get to it in a second. But you got a new book out called My America, Recipes from mm -hmm. a Young Black Chef that arrives in hardcover on May 3rd. This is your second book from what I understand, but it's your first cookbook. Yep. What, what did you want to achieve with this book? I wanted to show people the delicious bounty of Afro-American cuisine, the cuisine of brown and black people. <laughs> you know, I grew up in the Bronx, which is a melting pot of so many different cultures. Um, but I also lived in Nigeria. I lived in New Orleans. And when you talk about, you know, American food, I think everyone has their different version. Yes, we know burgers and fries and stuff like that. But what did we eat in America? And this is my America, you know, and it encapsulates Caribbean cuisine and it encapsulates um, food, you know, from Latin countries. It, it encapsulates West African food, it encapsulates some American dishes, you know, it encapsulates some Ethiopian dishes. So this is what my America was growing up. Um, and it's the food that I crave, it's the food that makes me, and it's the food that I wanna share with the world. Mike, if I may, just a follow-up question. So you you were born in Long Island, raised in the Boogie Bronx. Uh, you grew up around Puerto Ricans and Dominicans in the South Side. How has Latino food in particular influenced your cooking? And it is it is it something you would ever think on expanding? Yeah, it influenced me a lot. You know, I, I these are just the people that I grew up around. So. Um, 
for me, they, they were family, you know, my, my babysitters who were Dominican, my, my, my teachers were Dominican, you know, the, the business owners in the neighborhood were Dominican. My barber was Dominican. So it's like, it was just, it, it seemed like family in, in a certain aspect. And, you know, I could see myself in them and they can see themselves in me. Um, the food for, on, on another note was, was comfort. It was, you know, $5 that could stretch for two days. You know, you got a whole chicken with rice and rice and beans. Um, you were set, you were good. And, you know, empanada stock stands, you know, riddled on every corner. Um, that, that was part of my upbringing, you know? So, so yeah, man, um, it was a huge influence in me. I never picked up the language in, in totality. I can speak a little some some. I, I I can ask for directions, but um, but yeah, it's it's something that's super important to me and something that I'm I'm proud of. All right. Well, I want to ask you to kind of, to kind of jump on what Jack says there. Um, I'm from you know my my family's from Trinidad, uh, Barbados. So uh, I grew up with certain foods in the house that, well, you know, you go someplace else and nobody even heard of rock cakes or whatever that is. So mm-hmm. I want to, it's a two part question. What, what do you feel food says about a culture? How, how does it speak to you as a, as a chef and as someone who likes food? And then two, you know, we live in a culture where cultural pride often equals cultural prejudice, whereas everybody loves to try food from a different culture. You never know, you know, maybe not everybody, but it's mm-hmm. a way of learning about a culture. So, one part is what do you feel food says about a culture and, and what is it, how does it, you know, maybe define you? And two, what do you feel food can do in terms of bridging cultural gaps? Meaning it can yeah. open you up to something. That's a great question. You know, food, food tells a story and you can find the soul of a nation in a dish. You can find out its history. You can find out what, what's, what, what spice trade went where, you know, what people came to this place and when just from tasting the food and breaking down the dish to its etymology. So I think, you know, food is one of those things that's so explorative. If you, if you're, if you're thinking about it more than just sustenance, now it is sustenance. It's an art form that we ingest, which is pretty, pretty wonderful and splendid. Um, I, I think, you know, the role of food and bridging the gaps between different cultures is you're able to understand a culture more because of the food that they eat. Um, it's a unifier. Most blue collar food in any single nation um, is food of the people. And you'll see similarities in other blue collar, um, you know, na- and then different blue collar cultures and nations that will have similarities. I mean, every single culture has, you know, it's rice dish, it's fried rice or something, you know, pilau in, you know, in, in, in Trinidad, you know, rice and peas, you know, in Jamaica, you know, um, arroz con pollo in Puerto Rico, you know, so like, and then you think of the hand pies, right? You have meat meat pies in England, you know, you have empanadas or, or pasteles, pastelitos in, in Puerto Rico or empanadas, depending on where you're at. Um, you have beef patties, you know, in Jamaica and, and the rest of the Caribbean. So, um, and then you have Hot Pockets in America. No, I was just joking. But <laughs> <laughs> it's an empanada. It's an American empanada. <laughs> Shit, you know, for the fool me, motherfuckers. I don't know. <laughs> um, 
but no, it's like you know, you you see these similarities in in these in in the in the working people, the people that actually build the nation. And there's no other, there's no better way to bring people together than over a plate of food. The CDC reported that blacks were about 42% higher than whites, Asian, and Hispanics in eating I, fast food, right? And this was a mm-hmm. 2019 survey. And, you know, it, it. we know that the food industry is very white. We know that there's race involved in a lot of the food industry, food media, et cetera, but how much do you think race plays a role in how brown and black people eat food in America? Oh, it plays a huge role, you know, and that and that goes back to, you know, redlining and keeping people out of different zip codes. So, you know, you, you think of the the businesses that that the businesses go where they can make money. So they'll go to different they'll go to whiter communities um, that have infrastructure and build, you know, you know, Probably as many uh, uh, McDonald's are in the hood. There are Whole Foods in 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 the in the white neighborhoods, you know, because those people can afford it. And now that leaves those other businesses, um, you know, that are available for franchise at, at a cheaper startup rate. They then go into these areas, which then make them food deserts because people don't have access to getting healthy, good food. Unfortunately, America does not. America is very concerned. And this is people in general with cosmetics, so how food looks. So a lot of food that could go to these places are just thrown out on the farms because they know that they can't sell any of this stuff to any of these supermarkets. So 30% of all food that we grow is actually thrown out, which is a a crazy concept to think of. You think of a whole 100-acre cornfield, 30 acres, you might as well just light it on fire or just not plant it. You know, so like there's, I think race plays a major role, and I don't think it's like uh inherently right now like let's like, like someone twiddling in the bushes like hey, hey let's mess with these black and brown people but it's it's institutional institutionalized racism that has led us to this point where it's continued on and it will continue until we do something about it one of the things that you keep touching upon here that i love is just how food and cultural history are tied together and you know, the, your book talks about, you know, this America. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the Americanization of food or how food gets changed in America. Two examples I'm thinking of, you know, black folks were given the worst part of whatever was left when they were slaves, and they turned that into dishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chinese food comes here, and there are all kinds of Chinese dishes that you'll never find in China. Chop suey mm-hmm. doesn't exist, but it's an Americanized version. So, what are your thoughts on just how America can influence food and change or change a culture or, you know, just the impact of America on food? Yeah, well, I think every nation impacts it uh, in, in different ways. You know, you go to Domino's in Jamaica, you're going to get a different pizza than you'll get in, in the States. You go to KFC in Jamaica and Trinidad, that shit is fire. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so every nation is going to put their own sauce on it for lack of better words to to appeal to the larger masses now i think when we talk about you know black people you know getting the worst parts of the animals you know it's funny those aren't the worst parts of the animals in any other nation (laughs) you know they we eat all that stuff so like i think that they they were innovative but they also were just they were surviving they were like okay cool we you can give us any part of this animal i don't know why you would be throwing out any part of this animal you know 
and and they had to make do with what they got. And I think that that just shows the tenacity of of you know the, the black spirit and and human beings in general of of being able to you know push through adversity and make make things happen. Um, and then to speak to like the you know America you know watering down things uh, like a little bit further. Yeah, man, it's like you know I I I think it's because. America is still finding its identity. You know, they're they're in the infancy of 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 a nation. So um, so when it does come here, yeah, they have to alter it and doctor it so so the masses can enjoy it because the masses are from so many different places. You know, America is an immigrant's country, um, and you know it shows that in its food. Kwame, I wanted to talk to you about your worldview. You're 32 years old and you're damn extremely accomplished, man. There's, it's very hard to find another 32-year-old uh, that's in your position uh, where you're playing in a way that most chefs don't. And I know you don't like labels, but you know, for the most part, America has, has identified you as a chef. But you want to act. You have a nail polish coming up. I am acting. I don't you're, want to act. All right. There you go. There you go. You I are acting. acting. <laughs> uh, you're now in retail. Uh, you're you're an author. I mean, you're so many things. What do you read? Who? What kind of people do you talk to? What informs you on being Kwame? Um, I do. Uh, I keep a lot of things internal, you know, and I take hard looks in the mirror at myself and, you know, metaphorically and uh, try to understand, you know, who it is that I want to be. Like, let's take away what people have put me up on this pedestal for, what makes me happy. I really try to identify that. And it really comes down to that. Like, was I happy when I did this? If it's a no, then I'm not doing that again. You know, what is like giving me that little spark inside? Like when you're a kid and the feeling that you fucking had when the ice cream truck sound went off. What was that feeling? Okay, am I feeling that? If I'm not, beat it, you know? So like, I don't, yes, someone is gonna call us so many things, you know, like I was a um, a, a, a burger flipper at McDonald's at one point in time. But does that mean that that is who I am all the time? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like think about people that aren't like in the public eye, like. If you call somebody a profession, does that mean that they just do that all the time? No, you know, there's so many things we can accomplish on this short or long time that we have on this earth, you know, and time is relative. It really isn't like how much time that you have. It's it's what you do with that time, right? Like I, I get a script and I'm, and I'm trying to, you know, learn the lines and I, I say I'm going to spend seven hours on it and I don't. I spend maybe the last 30 minutes really like, Okay, let me try to learn these lines. I could have just did it in 30 minutes. I can also say I did it in seven hours. It's, it's what are you doing with that amount of time that you have that's, that's most important. To me, you know, my background is uh, as an artist. You know, I went to art high school, art college. So uh, all my friends coming up are artists. So I kind of see the world from that perspective. And I see what you do, uh, or I see most breakthroughs in any area uh, is, is artistry. So mm -hmm. to me, you know, recipes existed, but you're an artist. So you took it somewhere else. You took it to another mm -hmm. level. So tell me what your thoughts to me, everything I've read about you at your book, 
the food, what you're going for, uh, that you want to act, that tells me that you're an artist. It tells me you're a storyteller. So what are your thoughts on, because you talked about how food tells a story. What are your thoughts on being a culinary artist and just being an artist in general? Because I see that if you're an artist, whatever tools you use, you're going to express yourself. So mm -hmm. I want to know your thoughts on that. I mean, I, so, you know, that, that phrase or mantra that, that I told you in the beginning is my mantra in any, in everything. And it started in the kitchen. I was like, man, you know, if I'm going to cook something, like I wanted to tell us, cause I've, you know, I, I started cooking when I was young. So sometimes I would just be like, I want to do these carrots and I want to like puree them, but I want to use like carrot juice when I puree them. And then I'm going to put like a rabbit on top. And then, uh, it's just gonna be the Lord of the rabbit. And then I'm going to put some Swiss chard leaves all over it. And it's like, okay, but like, why? <laughs> like, why? Why are you doing this? Just because it, it tastes good? That 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 is cool and that is innovative. But I think when a dish tells a story, it has a soul. You know, you're not just cooking for perfect seasoning. You're cooking to like share an experience with someone. Perfect seasoning should be a prerequisite. That You don't get points for that. But like adding on this layer of like, yo, like I made these oxtails because, you know, when I was younger, I, was, I remember like being on my mom's hip and my grandfather came in, he swooped in, like swooped in like an eagle with a fork and put this oxtail in my mouth. And like, at first it was oxtail and then it was the rice and peas, man. The peas just like burst up. You getting excited, right? That, I was like, that shit is, I'm like writing a script about a dish. So when I look at food in this story aspect, it, it, I think it really encapsulates the essence of being a human being as well, which we're here to do, continue to pass on stories, continue to like make our, um, our the generation that comes after us have it a little bit easier than we've had it while we were here. That's why we're talking on this video chat right now, right? So like, I think um, I think it's, it's, it's super important to tell a story with your food. Um, and I just think it resonates with people more and it just hits home. Kwame, the food media industry, as we were talking a little while ago, um, we saw the reckoning, the racial reckoning that that Condé Nast in particular went through with Bon Appetit and uh, Adam Rappaport, uh, et cetera. Where do you find the food media industry today? Do you feel like since the Floyd murders, um, do, do you feel that food media has gotten it right? Are they progressing? Are they improving? From your perspective, food critics, are they nailing it? I mean, that's subjective, you know, like, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I think some people are, some people aren't. I think some people are really like putting passion into it and they're, they're having their moment because they're finally get a chance to, to write something. And some people are just doing it because it's the hot topic of the week, you know, and it, and it shows to me. I think, I think, you know, true change is proactive, not reactive. So, you know, the people that were already doing the work, you know, I, I think they're shining now because they're like, finally, Jesus Christ, you see how many articles I've written about that, you know, but the people that are like, I have something to say now, you know, and they have one little thing. It's like, miss me with that shit. So I think, you know, it's a little bit of both, honestly. For you as, as a chef uh, and, and, as we both know, you don't like titles. What what does that carry to you? What does it mean? What does a chef mean? What was your definition? What was your image of what a chef is? Because, you know, how many young black boys, I mean, you had a, a mom who had a catering business, so cooking, but many kids grew up watching their moms cook. 
What was your impression of what a chef with, is and, and how did that in any way work with your identity? My chef was my mom, man. I mean, she she wasn't like many moms cooking out of her kitchen. She was literally like a like cook doing events, you know, and like cooking cooking for cooking for very important people, um, very humbly as well, um, and doing it just to support uh, her children, but also to chase her passion, you know, and do something that she loved and chase that spark of happiness I talked about earlier. So. For me, my mom was a chef. It was only till like I started working in kitchens. I was like, whoa, 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 fuck is going on here? Like, who are all these white dudes? What's up? You know, so like I had the exact opposite um, for me, but it was polarizing because then I was like, man, is my mom a chef? Like, is she lying? <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, then, then I went on an exploration and asked about what's the definition of the word chef? So I went to the top chef. I, I recorded it. I went to Daniel Hume, I went to Thomas Keller, you know, and um, asked them what's the definition of the word chef. And the synopsis that I got was a leader. It had no, um, it no bearing of your environment. It was like, you're a leader in the kitchen. Like you, you, you've garnered enough skills to be able to eloquently tell somebody what to do, how to do it, when to take it off, when to put it on. So a chef to me is a leader in the kitchen, you know, point blank period, whether you're at home, and in a professional standpoint, though, like whether you're a private chef, whether you're um, a um, uh, a catering, you know, chef, whether you're a chef in restaurants, um, chef consultant, I think a chef is a leader in the kitchen that has accumulated enough skills to be able to do this at a professional level. Kwame, you mentioned Thomas Keller, but what brown and black chefs uh, have shaped the way you see food and have shaped your work in particular? You know, Patrick Clark, for sure, for like what he's done. You know, he was a chef of Tapping on the Green, you know, the first chef to win a James Beard Award. Marcus Samuelson, obviously, you know, uh, uh, the things that he's done has been incredible um, in this industry. Um, you know, and then, you know, even more recent, you know, Gregory Gourdet, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of him and and, and his approach to food. Uh, Leah Chase. Um, and Latino you know, chefs, are you familiar with any? Do you work with some? Some do you admire? There's, you know, Amar Santana. He's he's Dominican, you know, out of um, out of Orange County. You know, he's been a huge influence for me, and and you know, and somewhat of a mentor. Um, you know, Jose Andres is is you know definitely been one of my mentors as well. Um, uh, man, I forget his name. He actually has my favorite restaurant in, uh, I hate to say the world because that's so hard to say. Cause how do you measure like a Michelin star meal against a taco on the side of the street in Guadalajara? Like it's the taco, the taco is obviously better, you know? Um, <laughs> but you know, someone putting all of that work into it. Um, I'm trying to look up this guy's name. Um, it's called uh, Chef's Table at Brooklyn Fair, and it is uh, yeah, Cesar 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 Ramirez is you know is you know one of the greatest of all time. So there's plenty of you know Latino chefs as well that I that I truly admire. Well, I want to ask you a little bit about food theory, and maybe for our listeners, uh, share maybe some concepts. Uh, you know, I used to produce podcasts for Wine Enthusiast Magazine, and and they did a lot on pairing and, you know, how do you pair the perfect wine with a meal? Uh, and, you know, when you eat fine foods, you, you know, you, if you eat 
one part of the dish, you realize it's really meant to be eaten with another part of the dish. So it's like, well, this, this sweet or this tart. So tell me some basics of pairing that people maybe don't understand that can maybe help them with their meals or what they drink. Any, any? I don't know, man. I'm not a wine connoisseur, but you know, white fish, white, white meat with white wine, dark meat with red wine. That's all I got. But, you know, you can switch it up. I mean, my, my Sam at one of my restaurants used to serve it the opposite all the time. Like he would find the wine that went with it. You serve good food with good wine at the end of the day. So you can't serve crappy wine with crappy food or vice versa. Crappy wine with good food, good food with crappy wine. So it has to just be really good wine, you know, and, and you can shoot, you can use that you know, what I just said as like a baseline, you know, that's a, that's a baseline, you know, red meat, red wine, you know, white flesh meat with white wine. You'll be in a great place, but it's, but there's levels to that. There's more nuance to that. You know, there's like, there's dessert wine. There's also like, you know, different, there's so many different varietals of, of white wine. And then, you know, a particular one can go um, with a particular food, you know, of the white flesh, you know, genre of, 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 of those dishes. So, you know, I would just do your research. There's, there's so many, um, things online that if you get a bottle of wine, you can literally type it in and it'll tell you what it will go with. So I would honestly just do that and just, just trust in that, but you can read the book wine for dummies. It's the book that I read. The first book I read when I was a wine apprentice, it's honestly very, very, um, when I became a wine apprentice, that's the first thing they told me to read because it's a very well done book. Um, and, and yeah, it helped me really understand wine. I understand it, but like, I can't tell you like all the varietals off the top of my head of, of what to pair with what, cause it's, I don't want, I don't want to disrespect that industry. You know what sure, I'm saying? Sure. That's why. Well, I mean, so going back to, uh, notes from a young black chef, which is being adapted by a 24, did you start shooting that? Is that the photo on Instagram that you're in Montreal? No, man. I told you I'm an actor, baby. I was in a movie, a movie that was casted in a movie. Oh, so like, okay, because I know there's there's your life is being put as a biopic. Am I mistaken in that? No, you are. You are not mistaken in that. But that's that's later. That's someone, Lakeith Stanfield is playing me in that movie. So ah, okay. So that's what I'm trying to get sort of my 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 information, right? Because I know that there's there was mention that you were going to be a part of that movie, that you were going to appear in that movie. And so when I mm -hmm. saw your Instagram, I said, wait a minute, that must be the movie. But this is a separate movie you're doing this already. Is, yeah. So last year, um, I would say like over probably like two years now, I've been pursuing an acting career. So like I, I got an acting coach a year ago um, and, you know, have been going out on auditions and and, you know, booking roles. All right. So then this leaves my question, because Mike and I talk about this a lot, but we're always watching like foodie movies, right? So there's been a couple of really great movies as of late about uh, films, great films about food. For example, one of my favorite films about food is Chef with Jon Favreau. Mm -hmm. uh, the TV series Chef's Table. I think it's perfection. Right. I think it's art. What movies have you seen maybe that, that have become your favorites? My favorite Chef movie is uh, Ratatouille. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's, it's it's the most clear depiction of of the industry honestly i love ratatouille yeah i love it and then there's and then there's a show uh called whites it was uh it was in england it was kind of like the um the office but for chefs 
Um, and it, it's hilarious. Um, you can see it on YouTube. They only had like, they only had one season and it got canceled, but, um, but it's great. It's really great. What Jack asked you, I just want to jump off of that a little bit, uh, about a movie being made about you. I'm, I'm curious for, uh, how just being objective about your own life, telling, you know, I, I see you as a storyteller and now you're telling the story of your life. Uh, how is it? in any way coming full circle for you to have written this book, gotten the acclaim, there's a children's book adaptation, and now there's going to be a film that I'm curious, this whole journey, even just to where you're at now, 32, what did you learn about yourself? Maybe just in the process of writing that book and now seeing your story become a story that millions may see. I think the thing that I got was to believe in myself and not listen to anybody because I saw this a long time ago. And I just didn't know where and how it was gonna happen. But I kept just pushing forward. You know, like you, you've got to be your own biggest cheerleader at all times. I've, I, I have like really messed up events, whatever, or, or, or had bad services in the restaurant. And I'll come in the next day with the like, shit happens, man. Like we got to keep going. You still with confidence and not arrogance, but confidence because you can't be the one to just beat yourself up. Like there's plenty of other people out there to do that for you. You got to be that one person. If, if a mother, just think about this. If a mother has unconditional love to its child, then what's your love to yourself? You know what I'm saying? So I just, you know, like I would have never got to this point if I listened to people or listened to the the noise and the nonsense you know i would have never gotten to 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 a place where like now i'm going out you know on acting auditions like that's that's so beautiful to me at, at a certain at so many points in my life there's so many people that told me like you know you're doing good enough <laughs> you know like you're 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 for for your age you're doing fine for your i don't care about my age i don't care about any of that i care about you know being happy and walking in my purpose at all times because life is not promised you know it's it's, it's you, you just never know what's going to happen day to day so what i've learned in these past 10 years of like me really on this professional journey of like becoming a chef and you know becoming an artist and becoming a writer it's like just don't listen to people like just really really just walk into your purpose and believe in yourself and you know the stars will align. Well, my last question uh, for you, Kwame, is about the future of food. You know, when you really think about it, science is becoming so involved with food today. How are you seeing the progress in the way we eat food, the way food is made? What's it going to look like in 10, 20, 30 years from now um, under your guidance? I think it'll still be the same. You know, I think things come in and out all the time. We're still eating the same proteins we've been eating for the past 200, 300 years. So, you know, we still have legumes, we have grains, we've been eating bread for 2000, thousands of years. You know, I don't, I think trends come and go, you know, like everyone was think about like the canning industry. Everyone's about like canned meat, you know, well, I don't know how many years ago, 60, 70, 80 years ago with the industrial revolution, you know, and then it was like the TV dinners and then, but people are still like making home cooked meals at the end of the day because it's an act of love. And it's you. It's one of the only art forms that you can ingest. You and you think about that, right? I can go and buy someone a painting. I can't make a painting myself. 
everyone can like buy an ingredients and apply heat to it and then create some sustenance for someone. So I think that act of love, you know, will never go away. I think things will come in and out. Um, you know, you'll, we'll see more drone delivery services. You know, we, we, we may see, you know, the back to the future shit where we put a little tiny pizza in there and a big one pops out. But at the end of the day, there's nothing that's ever going to beat, you know, uh, a meal that someone puts their heart and soul into and uh, create something amazing. That's what Leah Chase said. You know, everyone can everyone can cook if you put a little love into it. I guess my last question is, uh, you know, a, a great person smarter than me said that, you know, there's no such thing as failure. Failure is just feedback. I want to know what's your, you know, what's your philosophy on failure? You know, you could create a dish that people don't like, or you could open a restaurant that doesn't work, but it's always, it is feedback, but what's your take? What's your philosophy on the concept of failure? Only someone else can put that label on you. Like, actually, let me rephrase that. Only you can put that label on yourself. Okay. So like, people can put all this money into Spider Spider-Man No Way Home, and a diehard Spider-Man fan can say that movie is a failure. Like, no, it didn't follow the it didn't follow the guidelines of like what happened in the comic books. Like they it was a sellout movie, you know, some bubblegum shit. And then you have the flip side of that coin, like we are the third biggest movie of all time, you know, and we are changing, you know, we brought movies back to theaters, you know. And then you have the scientists like they brought movies back to theaters. It's a fucking failure. We're all going to get COVID again. So the only person that can really say that's a failure is themselves. It's whoever made that. And I think that's the same thing with everything else. Failure is something that you can only own it. So you can say like, I didn't fail. I learned a lot or I didn't fail. That shit made some money or I didn't fail because I did what I wanted to do. You know, so like I think it's really upon yourself to eliminate the fear of failure. I think failure is, people are gonna say what they want. People are gonna say so shit was a flop or it was great. Even if it was great, it was whack. It doesn't really matter. It's you have to eliminate that fear of failure so you can go into every single opportunity like with the same enthusiasm. And that's what Jose Andres said to me one time um, when, when one of my restaurants quote unquote failed. Just continue doing stuff and continue being so excited about it. So yeah, have a bad service. Next day, guess what y'all, I'm about to kill it. You know, if something doesn't work out. Guess what, man? The next thing, God closes one door, opens another. I don't know. Just, just keep, 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 you know, that positive energy going and eliminate that word from your vocabulary when you're talking about yourself. Kwame, the name of the book is My America, Recipes from a Young Black Chef, which arrives in hardcover on May 3rd on Amazon and on bookstores. Kwame, thank you so much for being on the Brown and Black podcast. Of course. Thank you for having me. Had a great time. That's it for this episode of Brown and Black. We'd like to thank Chef Kwame Onwachi. His new book, My America, Recipes from a Young Black Chef, comes out May 17th. And if you like to support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. This episode was edited by Joshua Tirada. You can follow our comments and opinions on at Brown Black Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you on the next episode of Brown and Black.
Are you ready to turn your best ideas into a thriving online business? Introducing Shopify, your no excuses business partner. You might not realize, but our podcast, More Than Mammies, it's a business. And we started it, of course, to talk about maternity, not to become an e-commerce expert. So yeah, we needed some help selling our merch and getting our store up and running. Another sale. Shopify is a commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. No matter if you are a garage entrepreneur or a big business, Shopify is the only tool you need to start and grow your business without the struggle. With Shopify single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere, giving you the insights you need wherever you are. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash sonoro or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash sonoro to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash sonoro. 